weeks today. So it is the new year, and many people may have already made resolutions. I don't know if you did. I did not make any, actually. I um, haven't even thought about it or had time. Um, that's just how it works when uh, New Year's and Christmas fall on a Sunday. Uh, the day before, I'm still finishing up for you know Sunday service and the morning of. So New Year's, though, it's 2017. And originally, I had planned to finish uh, James last week for Christmas. Um, but I think the Lord just redirected me, and, and we did a message on the Incarnation. If you missed that, you could find the link on our, our webpage or go to SermonFaith.com and find us there. Um, which, by the way, everything on SermonFaith.com, it's all of, um, all the slides and, and the recording of what I'm saying. Uh, the way they're posted, if, if anybody wants to look them up ever, is it's by the date, space KCC. So you don't have to try to remember what it was. Just look, find the date, six digits, you know, so today is 010117 space KCC, and that's how you'll find it on SermonFaith.com. But we're going to finish James today, which might seem a little weird because we should be starting something new, but we'll start something new next week. But when we look at the topic that we'll be involved in in James, it's going to be very relevant to our year, and I want it to be a focus for us. James, as you'll remember, is about becoming a healthy disciple, becoming a mature and a complete Christian, that James wants you not to be a lopsided Christian. He wants you to be mature and complete in Christ. He wants you to be the full-orbed man or woman that you're supposed to be in Christ. And he deals with the various temptations that uh, face us and actually can uh, lead us astray from that path that God wants us to be on. R. Kent Hughes has said, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many or most Christians attend church, they marry, they choose their vocations, they have children, they buy and sell homes, they expand their portfolios, and they numbly ride the current of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. We don't want to be those people. I do not want to be that kind of a person. I want to be someone who submits myself to God, as James 1.1 says, and everything about my life is done with God, planning with God, like we talked about a few weeks ago. And so as James continues in his letter, he moves in chapter 5, which we're going to be looking at today, the last few verses of it, approximately 13 to, to 20 there, with the idea of prayer. So this morning I want you to understand how you can pray with power. That as, as James finishes out, what better way to do it than to talk about the power of prayer and what you and I should be doing related to prayer. Now he starts out in, in verse 12 as kind of a transition verse from the previous section. In James 5.12 he says, Now above all, he says, My brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes, and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Now what does this have to do with prayer? Well, it's leading into it. This is a transition verse from the previous passage about the words that you use. Now if you remember, in the five short chapters of James... We've done an entire sermon on the words that you use, the tongue, and how you can either speak as an angel or a demon, meaning are your words of heaven or hell? Are you helping expand God's kingdom, or are you ripping things apart and helping the words of the devil? So here James picks up on this idea again, and, and the pervasive idea from, from this verse is really about your integrity. It's about whether or not you're a trustworthy person. Can people believe what you say? Or do you have to bolster everything you say when you really want them to believe you? You see, some people 
no matter what they say, you walk away thinking, yeah, right, or believe it when I see it. There's people that are like that. They tell me something, and I'm just like, I believe it when I see it. Why? Because the pattern of their life has been such that whatever they say, it just doesn't happen. They don't do it. They don't follow through. So what happens? You stop what? You stop believing them. It's just words out of their mouth. They haven't learned to control their tongue. They haven't learned about reigning in that desire within them. They just want to say these things. They have no filter. And so James, again, brings this topic of, of the tongue and the words to the forefront. But the question is, how trustworthy and reliable are you? He picks up on the Old Testament commands not to swear falsely, which, of course, is in what's the favorite Old Testament book other than Genesis? Leviticus, exactly. Leviticus 19.12. You're not going to get away with it. Everywhere I look, it's everywhere. Okay, it's also in Jeremiah 5.2, Hosea 4.2, and Malachi 3.5. All of these talk about uh, not swearing falsely and, and watching what you say, the promises you make, the vows you make. Can you imagine if God made promises to us and didn't keep them? Do you realize the only way that we can really have, have trust in God and be a stable Christian is because we actually believe that when he says that we become his child, he's going to take us with him to heaven. Now, I know that within Christianity, there's a lot of, of variance in, in what people believe, and people get confused, and that's why it's important that you study the scriptures day in and day out. But especially when I was a, a new Christian in college, and then when I was in Bible college, there was always other Christians who did not believe in the security of their salvation. And this isn't a, a message on that today, but I'm just saying, people are unstable when they don't believe in the security of their salvation. They are either always worried about losing their salvation, or they start moving towards a works-based salvation. Because they want to be in, but they're not sure they are. That's not salvation. When God adopts you in, you're in. That is the security and the surety that you have to live out the rest of your life. You can trust his word. Why? Because his word doesn't fade. Isaiah 40, verse 2, I think. His word is sure and lasts forever. So James argues that you should use your words here to pray rather than trying to build up yourself and build up trust in yourself. If you've got to always tell people, hey, I swear by this, or listen, I really, really mean it, then listen, you've got a bad reputation. So you're just going to have to have patience, another theme in James. Speak the truth from now on. Let's make 2017 the year of truth, eh? Speak the truth from now on, and over time, what will happen? Over time, they will start to believe you as you rebuild trust. My young people, you can spend 20 years building up your reputation, and you can ruin it in 20 seconds, and you won't get it back. Or if you get it back, it might take another 20 years. So one little thing, it does matter. Integrity. And so let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, just speak the truth and say what you mean and mean what you say. And with that, James moves in to the purposeful words of prayer. Because what he wants to focus on now is how you use those words. Instead of trying to build yourself up and rely upon yourself, instead of trying to bolster and having to say, this is all the reasons why you should trust me, let's just change the game here. Let's look at why we should trust God and why we should go to God. So let's use our words for that. Let's have purposeful words. 
starting in verse 13, he says this. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain in the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. You wish you could stop the rain, start the rain? That's powerful prayer. That's praying with power. Now he starts off the verse. We'll get to Elijah in a minute. But he starts off saying, is anyone suffering? As we mentioned a few weeks ago, R.T. Kendall has said, every trial has a purpose, a design, and a lesson. And this word that we have here, is anyone suffering? Suffering simply means any kind of issue, trouble that's come your way. It might not be sickness. We'll get to that in just a moment. It could be any kind of trouble that's coming your way. And so... That's why the quote from R.T. Kendall is so relevant. Every trial has a purpose, a design, and a lesson. Maybe what you're going through is not what I'm going through. Maybe what I'm going through is not what you're going through. But in them, there is a purpose. There is a design. There is a lesson. God is doing something. And we know from James that he's trying to make you into a mature and a complete Christian that lacks nothing. He's trying to build your confidence and resolve in God. Sometimes that's difficult in our lives. So James is urging us not to sweep the trial aside and miss the lesson that God has for us. And so what do we want to do? Well, we want to pray with power. Here the temptation of life moves into a very personal space with suffering. James had first mentioned personal hardships back in James 1-2. And just recently in James 5-7-11, he had more fully discussed the need for a strong faith and perseverance and endurance to the persecution that could occur at the hands of the rich or even the poor. You could be persecuted by them too, I guess. Here, the suffering in life could be just about anything. It's a temptation. Now, as we've looked at these, these trials, one of the things that I've mentioned a few weeks ago is there's a flip side of the coin. Each trial ha has a temptation side to it. So there's a temptation here to live individualistically, to live apart from God. And this is one of those temptations that arises from our own unchecked desires. So this is the idea that you can just live by yourself apart from God. Just like planning apart from God. Instead, you're supposed to plan with God. And so how do you, how do you respond to this? How is it that you pray with power? What does that even mean? And how do you do it? Well, the first thing you've got to do is pursue God. You've got to pursue God. If you look at the text, what he said there was... That if you are in this situation, okay, anyone's suffering, he should pray. Well, what is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is communicating with the creator of the universe. The creation is communicating with the creator. Okay? Walkie-talkie, back and forth. And so God is saying through James that you need to pursue him. Rather than going it alone or just manning up, okay, we hear that a lot in our culture, man up, right? You should call out to God. You should pursue God, not just doctors. Now listen, if this, if this issue is sickness, which we'll get to in just a minute, then, and you want to call a doctor, that's fine. But who should you call first? You should call God first, right? When you have a financial problem, right? And instead of going to your credit card first, you should go to who first? God first, right? 
our world, though, we're taught, really, from the time that we're little, both by example and word, that despite the fact that we're Christians, we often don't go to God first. Really, we're practical atheists. We should be going to God first. Pursue God in trust and in faith, believing that he can sustain you and he can even alter your circumstances if it's his will. Which goes back to James 1. James 1 started out in the first verse that James is a slave of God. So when you become a Christian, you're a servant, you're a slave, you're a doulos of God. It has to be in line with God's will. It can't just be what you want. Hezekiah, he prayed. He got 15 more years of his life. He's like, wow, that's awesome. That's what, that's what I want. Well, I don't know if that was the wisest prayer for in those 15 years, people found out about it. They praised God. That's, that's the good part. But then, in probably his, his arrogance, he showed them all sorts of things, the Babylonians in particular, his treasures, etc., that he shouldn't have done, probably. And God told him, yeah, they're going to come back and take all that away. But it's going to be after you die. And so my point there is simply, yes, it's awesome. God healed the man. He was going to die. I, I don't know if that's the why. Sometimes it's just best to go on. Now, I, I don't know God's mind on it. I, this isn't a sermon on Hezekiah today. I'm just saying we're all put here for a time period to do a certain thing. I don't know if he overstayed his welcome or not, or he just made an unwise decision after being blessed. Solomon did that also. Pursue God. If you're able to recognize and remain steadfast in your faith, then let the peace of God sustain you. Yes, ma'am. Did you just say Solomon didn't pray? You said Solomon made an unwise Solomon made lots of unwise decisions, even though he was yeah. the wisest man, yes. Yeah, read Kings. Yeah. <clears throat> Solomon didn't use all that knowledge uh, for wisdom sometimes. Remember, it's a good question because wisdom is about lining up with God's will, right, and following God's path, right? And you got two types of wisdom, wisdom from above and from below, exactly. And sometimes Solomon followed the wisdom from below. And he had more gifts and, and grace and, and benefits from God than like anybody. So he was the wisest, wealthiest, richest, most famous man in the world. So yeah, we have to be very careful. So as, as uh, James discusses this, you have things going on in your life. And he says, pursue God with them, okay? You don't just go on your own. If you're one of those people who are not consumed with uh, self-pity, then you might be the person in the, in the part of the verse that says that is anyone cheerful that he should sing praises. Now, how does this fit in? First, he's got suffering, and then he's got singing praises. Because here's the deal. He's talking about the same situations. He's saying, this person, they're going through a trouble, they're going through a crisis. But instead of being waylaid by it, what they're able to do is trust God because they have the peace of God, because they're following God. And so he says, for you, since you're cheerful in your situation, sing praises to God. This might seem a little weird. If you're in a situation and, and you're not realizing what's going on and you're, and you're frustrated and you're hurt and you're mad and you're angry and you're bitter, yeah, you're probably not going to be singing praises. Uh, but James is saying here that it is possible not only to pursue God, but to praise him with passion. So 
If you praise God with passion, this is the person who is able in their situation to deal with the trial that's in their life. And how do they deal with it? They have the peace of God. So you talk sometimes, you hear people, Christians, talk about the peace of God that passes all understanding, right, from Philippians? And here we see that James talks about it. He doesn't say it the same way Paul does. You have to read between the lines because he's only got like ten words that talk about it here. But he's saying that just like the Apostle Paul in Acts 27, verses 22 to 25, he was able to offer comfort in the midst of a shipwreck because he knew everyone would be safe. Why? Because he had a close relationship with God. He had first pursued God. And God had helped him understand this. But you have to first pursue God. If you don't pursue God, are you going to be able to praise God with passion in the midst of your storm? No. So the truth of the matter is that I have to confess in my own life. Many, many times I don't, I don't praise God with passion in the middle of my storm. What does that mean? Well, it means my eyes aren't on Jesus. It means metaphorically the same thing that we say with Peter every time we talk about the fact that he started to sink was because he took his eyes off who? Jesus. Exactly. But when he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink, what's the next thing that was very wise that he did? He cried out to Jesus, save me. And what did Jesus do? He saved him. So you pursue God, you praise God with passion. Now we're going to come back to what I just said about Peter, but I, I want to talk a little more about this praising God with passion. All through the Psalms, we see something called lament psalms. There's different types of psalms, okay? The psalms are the songs of the Old Testament. Lament psalms. Lament psalms are songs that people cry out to God in the midst of their trouble and their trials, their tribulations. David could be running around, Saul chasing him, and, and David would be crying out to God, God, why don't you do something? Don't you see what's going on? Help me out of this situation. Now, these are laments. But the interesting thing about lament psalms is they normally end in praise. So they start off with a complaint but they, or a problem, but they end with praise. How is that possible? Because as they go through this, they realize who God is. And God being their rock enables them to believe that God is going to see them through this situation and that God will show his mighty hand. And so the lament psalms end in praise. You're familiar, a lot of you, with Psalm 22, that Jesus speaks from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're like, see, God forsook Jesus. But see, if you know Psalm 22, and you understand Jewish culture, you know that when you say the first line of something, okay, maybe it's a, a movie quote. I say the first line, and then what do you do? Quote. You quote the next part, right? So in Psalm 22, it starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not how it ends. Listen to this. In Psalm 22, verse 22, right in the middle, he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. Continuing through to the last verse in 22, verse 31, which ends with telling future generations about what God has done. What happens in this lament psalm? See, Jesus isn't just saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just a complaint and a problem. Jesus is also saying, when he says that from the cross, God is about to do something great here. And all the nations will know what God is doing through this situation. And so when James says, yeah, you pursue God, but you praise God with passion if you understand God and if you're actually pursuing him. He's saying that in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your trouble, 
you can be praising God because you know that God is doing a work in this, and at the end, God is going to be praised and lifted up through it because he's going to show his mighty hand. And what he does in that situation, if you allow him, will be used for his glory in evangelizing the whole world. Let me make one uh, note of comment for you. Last year, Melissa and I um, used as our, our devotional book that we read a section from each night before we go to bed, The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller. I think it was brand new last year, so it's about a year and a half or so old now. Um, I want to highly recommend this. Um, the whole thing is on the Psalms. So every single day for an entire year, okay, you will read a small portion of one of the Psalms, and then there will be a small comment. They're really small. They're quick. You can, you can see from the book right here. They don't take a lot of time, but they're great. I found myself repeatedly saying, mostly just to myself, but repeatedly saying, I wish I was doing this in the morning because I always had these sparks of ideas that were triggered from what was said, both in the psalm and in sometimes the comments by Keller as well. And so when we talk about praising God and when we talk about pursuing God and praising him with passion, that's, that's the psalms. It's a record of that in scripture. So read the psalms, and that's an excellent resource. But James doesn't stop there with pursuing God and praising God with passion. He moves on, and he does all this in the space of just a couple of verses. First, he had asked, is anyone suffering? Well, pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, then sing praises. But the third thing he says is anyone sick. And now he moves to a specific form of suffering or a specific trial. And this is where he says, we'll get some pastoral participation. Okay, this is where you bring in some other people in the church. Now, he uses the word elders, okay, and I have pastoral participation just because I'm alliterating, obviously, right? And E doesn't go with P. So, pastoral participation, the elders. Now, in early churches, they often had multiple leaders. It wasn't necessarily just one pastor. And many, many Baptists will, will push back against that. But if you go study some of the earlier uh, Baptists, they often had more than one uh, leader in their church also. The elders are normally the older people, the older men, who are helping the, the church by teaching, by doing uh, shepherding and pastoral ministry, etc. And so what happens here is in this section now, James is saying, all right, listen, there, there's another step that can be, can be done here. He picks up on this particular type of suffering, sickness in this case. And he said the Christians should deal with suffering, sickness, and sin by intercession with God and the intervention in the lives of fellow believers. Sometimes sin will be one of the direct causes of suffering or sickness, and sometimes it will not be. But when it is, confession becomes crucial, and in all situations, prayer proves powerful. Blomberg said that in his commentary <clears throat> on James. Here James instructs us that you should call out for help, confess your sins, be anointed with oil, and the elders pray for you. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that. We've, we've done that um, a couple of times in our church. Uh, most of you don't know her, but uh, back in the beginning of our church ministry, um, I had her name on the tip of my tongue, and I just lost it. Who? Nope. Oh, Verna. Verna, Verna thank you. Yes. Um, the very first Bible study that we started, the first home that opened up their doors to us, um, in Carver Shores was Verna. And we didn't know it at the time, but, but Verna was in the last nine months of her life. She had uh, cancer, and nine months later, as she was dying, 
she was helping birth Kirkland Community Church. And so in her last days, um, a group of us, Cheryl and I and uh, the Santos and I don't know, whoever else, uh, Bruce, yeah, went and um, we, we prayed, we anointed with oil, we sang songs. But Verna didn't get healed in that situation. So this is a troubling verse for many Christians because we read it and you have some Christians who say, well, they didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe enough. And this actually goes down sometimes in hospitals. You'll have a person in a hospital and you'll have two sides of the family. And one side will believe that if you have faith enough, God will heal them. And the other side will say, well, God will heal them if he will. And the person dies. And then you've got one side of a family mad at the other side of the family because they don't think they had enough faith. And so now the family's split when they just lost a loved one. And obviously that's not what James wants because he's about maturing and he's about unifying the church, not splitting it. So what do we make of this, and how do we deal with this? Well, the pastoral participation involves the same principle that the individual who prays with power should demonstrate, and that's simply that it's a community situation. I've, I've said this repeatedly, and I'll keep saying it because in America we don't get it. The church is supposed to be family. I fail at doing this. If I only see you once a week, that's, that's really not too good in my opinion. All right, and so some of that fault is on me. Some of it's on the, the culture that we live in and, and that we, we don't live in close proximity sometimes, and so it's difficult. But that's not how it was in the, the early church. They lived in close proximity. They would eat together. They would fellowship together on a daily basis if you read Acts chapter 2. We lack that. And because we lack that, we lack the intimacy. That's why we don't know what's going on in each other's lives. That's why we don't know what your sins are. You're like, what? why do you want to know my sins? Okay, when you live in a house... Do you know what all the brothers and sisters and moms and dads' pet peeves are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what their idiosyncrasies are? Yeah. Do you know when they get upset? Yeah. Do you know what their hidden sins are? Yeah, you do. Do people outside the family? Maybe not. But guess what? The church people are supposed to be what? We're inside the family. Okay? And so James is saying, listen, this is a family matter. You've got a brother or sister that's sick? That's a family matter. You got a brother or sister that is in the middle of suffering or a trial or some trouble? That's a family matter. They can't pay their bills. Yeah, that's a family matter. It's not just, oh, whatever. It's, oh, I'll just pray for them. What does James say about that? You have the resources or the means to help them, and you say, I'll just pray. I hope you get better. Do you remember how we talked about that? Oh, the guy has no clothes. Okay, I- I'll pray for you. Wait, but you've got 10 more shirts in your closet. That's nice. Pray for him and then give him a shirt. Right? So James says, Pastoral participation. Why? Because it's a body issue. When one part of the body hurts, what? The whole hurts. And who's part of the whole? The head. So the head is who? Jesus. Jesus, exactly. So if if the toe's hurting and the arms aren't willing to help the toe, what's the head saying? He's saying, arm, help the toe. And then he's crying. Mark's the arm. It's not helping. And I'm the head. I'm Jesus. And I'm saying, Mark, help the boy. But he's not. So now I'm crying. You with me? Okay. All right. That's what's going on. 
Pastoral participation involves the, the same principle. We're a community. We're a family. When you study the prayer of God's people in Scripture, you'll see that quite likely our prayers are often weak, anemic, and unbelieving. In the pages of Scripture, we see people who have great, bold faith who don't doubt, but rather they pursue, they petition, and they even provoke God in prayer. They pursue God. They go to Him. They call out. They cry out. Right? The Psalms. We talked about that, right? You got, you're pursuing God. Crying out to God is a common theme throughout the Bible. Think about the Israelites when they're in Egypt. What did it say? God heard their what? Their cry. Now let's also use negatively. Okay? The evil going on in Sodom was crying out to God to do something about it. Right? In a negative way. Punishment. You also have it also in the sense that when someone being oppressed cries out to God, what does God say he's going to do? He's going to hear their cry and he's going to do something about it. So the cries of God... Even Jonah, the rebellious prophet, in the belly of the fish, cries out to God. And what does God do? He hears him and responds. God hears the cries, especially of his people. But petition, what does that mean? Petition. It means to ask God to do something. The text in James says that Elijah is like us. What does that mean? It means he's human. Okay? Elijah was not an angel. Elijah was not the son of God incarnate. Elijah was a man. But Elijah was bold. Elijah had powerful prayers. Now, you petition God. You ask God for something. In 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, that's where you'll find Elijah's stories. Okay? He raises a widow's son in 1 Kings 17, 20 to 24. He brings down fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18, 36 to 37. And we normally take Elijah and we put him in a separate category by himself. Because he's like superhuman. But here James says that actually he's just like you and me. So all of a sudden we bring him down from his superhuman status and we say, nope, he's a human just like you. He's a man. Now did God supernaturally endow him with stuff? Did God do great works of the Holy Spirit with him? Oh, by no doubt he did. But James is saying, hey, buddy, that's all through the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God. And who indwells you if you're a Christian? The Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit of God that brooded on the waters in Genesis 1-2 and created the universe. The same Spirit of God that gives new life same spirit of God you find in Ezekiel and Revelation. Elijah, like us. They don't only petition God, which even Jesus did, right? He prays in the garden three times. He prays for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. And what happens? He's raised from the dead. Petitioning God, right? But they don't just petition God. They even provoke God sometimes. Now, this one is a little different. You, you might not like this. You might have to wrestle with this a little bit. Okay? I, I wrestle with it a little bit. I think about Abraham and Job here. Walter Brueggemann talks about this specifically in relationship to Abraham in Genesis 18, verses 22 to 33. Walter Brueggemann, if you don't know him, he's an eminent Old Testament scholar. He's written 50, 60, 80 books. I don't know. Uh, He's well-known. All i got to do is Google his name, except that you probably can't spell his last name. But anyway, the guy says in, in Genesis 18, okay, with Abraham, Abraham goes before God, right? 
And Abraham is going to barter or bargain with God about Sodom. And here's the point. This is why he's provoking God in a sense. He goes to God, and depending on how you read the text, he goes to God, and basically he says, listen, God, uh, you can't do that. Now remember, God, God has showed him what he's going to do with Sodom. He's, he's showed him he's going to take it out. And basically he says, you can't do that. Now can you imagine saying that to God? But Abraham basically does. He says, you can't do that, God. And here's why. Because you're just and you're righteous. And so you can't eliminate the righteous with the unjust. You see, the translation tones it down a little bit. And so then he starts bargaining with God. He says, what if there's 50 there? Will you spare it? And, and nowhere in the text do you see God getting upset. Nowhere in the text do you see God pushing back. Actually, what you see is the opposite. God just agrees with everything he says. Sure, Abe, yep. Uh, yep, I'll just forget it. We, we won't torch Sodom if there's 50. Is that enough for Abraham? No, he provokes him more. He pushes more. 45, 40, 35, 30. They just bargain all the way down to 10. Why he stopped at 10, I don't know. God doesn't get upset. God agrees with every one of them without a problem. Now, unfortunately, there weren't 10 righteous people in Sodom. However, God did send his angel. And Lot was spared, and his two daughters. And that's a story for another day. But they were spared. Why? The righteous people in Scripture, I want you to understand something. <clears throat> when you're a follower of Christ, you, you don't realize the extent of this, I'm sure, because I don't either. But based on the pages of Scripture, the righteous people of God living somewhere actually do something. They, they actually stem the tide of evil somehow. It's kind of like, I don't know why I always go back to Mario brothers, it's just, I guess because they have that little bubble around them when they're invincible all of a sudden. I'm not saying you're invincible. I'm using this for another, another point. But it's kind of like there's a bubble around you that impacts wherever you are. And it actually stems the tide of some of the evil. If you took all the Christians out of the world, this world literally would be hell. There'd be no spirit of God present. If we took all the Christians out. The fact that we're here actually calms things down. And so even Lot in this unrighteous city, and I don't know how closely he was walking with God, but even he being there was having some mediating influence on this. Think about Job provoking God. What does Job cry out and plead and demand? He demands a hearing with God. He demands an appointment in God's court with God. No, when God shows up, he silences Job pretty fast. But does he kill Job? No, on the contrary. He blesses him by giving him everything back because the scriptures clearly tell us that Job was a righteous man. Job had integrity. Job took care of the homeless people. Job took care of the naked people. But like Abraham, he provokes God. Give me a day in court. I want an answer. Well, he never really gets his full answer, but he does get an appointment with God. Let me ask you, do you think you'd ever forget the time that God showed up and spoke to you? No, you wouldn't forget that, would you? Do you think Moses forgot the time that God spoke to him? Do you think that Elijah forgot when God spoke in his still small little friend of mine, and when God went by for Moses and held his backside? No. They pursued God. 
They even provoked God. They petitioned God. But they're also penitent with God. What does penitent mean? It means repentant. It means you confess. You look at our, our text here and you see about confessing. You confess to the community. You call the community. You've got to be confessing with God. Confess means you agree with God about the seriousness of your sin. You agree with God about the charge of what's going on. Maybe we have less sickness if we hold more familiar relationships in our churches. More confession, more transparency, more forgiveness, more prayer. James concludes with the thought that just as the prayer of the righteous, Elijah, resulted in the refreshing of the earth, so the prayer of the righteous believer can result in the refreshing and healing of a Christian affected by sickness caused by sin. The prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. You're not guaranteed a healing. Because God's not a puppet at your disposal. See, that's the problem. When you say that God is mandated to do something because you said something, you're saying that the creator is mandated to do what the creation says. Now, that's like a kid saying his parents are mandated to do something because he said it. I'm sorry. You got roles all reversed, buddy. Parents are not mandated to do anything a kid says, and a creator is not mandated to do anything the creation says. It's the other way around. Amy Carmichael, the turn of the century missionary to India, described the attempted healing of one of her treasured co-workers, a woman named Hanumel, who contracted cancer in 1913. Amy was, of course, aware of James' prescription to call the elders of the church and anoint the ill and offer the prayer of faith. But she and her fellowship were not sure what to do. So they sought a sign asking that if it was God's will, he would send someone to them who was earnest about James' prescription for healing. The person came, an old friend of hers from Madras. As her biographer, Elizabeth Elliot, describes it, it was a solemn meeting around the sickbed. The woman dressed as usual in their hand-loomed saris, but white ones for this occasion. They laid a palm branch across Hanamel's bed as a sign of victory and accepted whatever answer God might give, certain that whether it was to be a physical healing or not, he would give victory and peace. It sounds like a simple formula. It was an act of faith, but certainly accompanied by the anguish of doubt and desire which had to be brought again and again under the authority of the master. From that very day, Panama grew worse. The pain increased, her eyes grew dull as she lingered for days in misery until she reached her limit and her warfare was accomplished. In other words, she dies. They followed the directions in James. Wait to be God. Now some spiritualize this text. And they say that James is talking about, yeah, you'll be healed spiritually. So, I mean, there's a sense where that's true, but that's not what James is getting at. Yeah, you will be either physically healed or one day spiritually healed. But James is, is looking at physical. If you look at the words he used, look at the rest of the Bible, how they're used, you look at the context of the passage, he's talking about physical healing here. So you're going to have to realize that this is not a guarantee. This is not, because you can't demand to God. Honesty demands that we admit that such is often the case when Christians attempt to follow this scripture passage. We attempted to follow it, we're burned. Brenda's no longer with us. But we do believe she's with Jesus. So what, what do you make of this? How, how, do, how do you flesh this out? What, what do you do with it? Well, I think you follow it. You do what it says. And you go back to the other examples in uh, the person who's just going through something on, on their own, and, and they, don't, they don't call in the elders, but they do realize and they pursue God. The person who's going through something and 
they're at peace with it, and they praise God. A person who is overwhelmed until finally, what do they do? They call the church, right? They call for the elders to come. But in each case, we're pursuing God. In each case, they're supposed to be praising God. In each case, there's supposed to be the confession of sin, a penitent heart. Those are the things that need to be in place in each of the situations. The outcome, we have to leave up to God. I don't know what's going to happen. So we doubt and we go back and forth, but we know that James has said, what about doubting? Can you doubt and believe? No, you can't. That's part of the, the whole point of the book, right? You can't doubt and believe. You're unstable in all of your ways. So how do you, how do you come to a conclusion with this passage then? Well, the conclusion has got to be that we go back to James 1.1. 1, 1, and we're to do all for God. He's the master, and we're the servant. And so we do what the master says, believing that we have a good master because he is the father of lights, and all good gifts come down from him. And so as the good master, he's going to take the best care of his doulos, us. And so we follow what he says, and we leave the outcome up to him. So even if somebody is physically healed by following, let's say, the passage in James, what is going to happen to them eventually unless Jesus comes first? They're going to die. Now, to me, this is very, very strange, but do you know what had to have happened to Lazarus in the Gospels? It's not recorded, but what had to have happened to him? He died again. Twice. Think about that. It's a little crazy. He died, Jesus raised him from the dead, and then he dies again, right? So, eventually, even if you're physically healed, you're going to die physically unless Jesus comes back first. And so, keep that in mind when you're dealing with the maturity of Christ that God wants in us. And so, praying with power involves pursuing God, petitioning God, provoking God, maybe, being penitent with God. And James finishes out the book in verse 19 and 20, by saying, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, then let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. And verse 19 and 20. And so here he finishes out and he says, Listen, sometimes people are led astray. By what? Their desires from where? Their own heart. Okay? They might choose to become a friend of the world, which we've already seen. Makes you an enemy of God. Exactly. They might choose to follow after the lust of their flesh. They might choose to go after something that is not of God. And what does that lead to? It leads to sin. And what does sin lead to? It leads to death. Chapter 1, right? They might choose to use their words in an unwise manner. They might choose to follow the, the ways of the wisdom of below instead of the wisdom from above. Any of the things that we've looked at in James, these are all temptations that you and I face. They are all things that desires that are unchecked could lead to. And so James ends by saying, if anyone strays from the truth, what should we do? Let him go? No. No. You don't let the little sheep run off by himself. You leave the 99 and you go get them. Matthew 18. We go and restore one another. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 tells us 
But again, pursue them with a purpose. That's what we're dealing with. Pursuing with a purpose here. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, any, any, what's the wrongdoing? It's the same as what James is talking about, right? They've, they've gone astray. You who are spiritual, which means we need to follow the advice of James so we can be mature and spiritual. You should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. And interestingly, there's the word tempted again, which is all over in James, right? This is from the Apostle Paul. So they're saying the same thing. So what do you do? You go after them. You try to restore them. You mend them. Remember, they're a part of the body. The toe got out of whack. The elbow got out of joint. The arm got broken. Well, let's fix it. I don't like a broken body, do you? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 to 7 supports this. Okay? Paul, in his own life, dealt with this repeatedly. He would pursue people. In Galatians, he says, Who cut in and led you astray? You were following so faithfully. What happened here? Abraham pursued Lot when he was taken by enemy Cain. Abraham interceded for Lot. Moses interceded for the Israelites. The righteous life mitigates and limits the effects of sin. When all Christians are removed from the world, it'll get much worse. But until then, what do you need to do? You need to be a person that cares about other people. You need to pursue people with a purpose. You don't pursue them to knock them upside the head with a baseball bat. You pursue them to, to help them get reconnected to the body, to mend the joints. That's what we need to be about. A life of prayer. As we summarize James, I'm, I'm going to put basically the summary up on the screen. This is what we've gone through in our series of James. So I'm just going to leave that up there as I, I finish out this morning. And we're going to finish a little differently than normal. So in, in a few minutes, um, instead of our normal table talk time, I think it would be probably hypocritical of us to spend uh, 40 or whatever minutes talking about prayer and then be done. So we're going to spend some time in prayer this morning. That'll be our table talk. We pursue one another with purpose. Why, why does it matter when, when you're not here? Because if you're not here, you're not here to encourage us. Yeah, it, it is encouraging when you're here. I don't spend hours each week putting together a message uh, just for myself. Um, yes, I learn from my doing it myself, but I don't need to, to write it up all night. I don't need to put it in a computer for myself. I get it as I'm studying it, right? So uh, we put work into what we do. We want you to benefit from it. Um, seeing you encourages me and other people hopefully here. Um, why? Because we're part of the body, because we care about each other. Okay? We care what happens to you. I care if you've had a bad week. I care if your house has a fire. I, I care if your car breaks down. And I hope that you do also. So we pursue each other because we're first pursuing who? Yes, Eric. Because we're pursuing God. I don't pursue you for the sake of you. I pursue you for the sake of God. Because I want one day, us to be together in heaven and us all to be here. That's what Jesus wanted. That's what Paul wanted. That they would be presented, presented to God, pure, without spot or blemish. So what I'd like to do now is um, I'll, I'll say a short prayer right now and then 
Um, we'll move to a different slide just so the recording can stop. And then we are going to spend some, some time this morning in prayer related to these things. So, Father, we thank you for your patience with us and ask that you would right now begin to work in our hearts. Show us things that we need to confess. Show us people that maybe we need to pursue. But first and foremost, God, help us to be people in 2017 that pursue you. No matter what comes our way, no matter what the trials are, whether they're sickness or some other thing, help us to be people that keep a short leash on sin, to get rid of it as quickly as possible, to keep it from even starting, to be people that will pursue you unparalleled passion this year, that our prayers would be more powerful than they've ever been, that we would see results from them, because you work in them. Pray this in Jesus' name.